I pray as we turn our hearts now to your word, as Pastor John Mark comes and preaches to us from 1 Peter 3, that you would help us to start from a place of resting in you. I pray your truth would be like honey to us, that it would, even if it stings a little bit sometimes, it would taste the way it needs to and go down and nourish us in the deepest parts of who we are. So open our minds and our hearts to your truth today. I pray you strengthen us to hear and believe your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in understanding, Way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. We gather week after week with joy to celebrate Jesus because Jesus is our Savior, He's our Master, He's our Teacher, He's our Friend, and He's our Healer. Isn't Jesus good, y'all? And Jesus wants to bring His wisdom and His healing grace to bear on the most intimate parts of our lives including all of our deepest joys and all of our deepest brokenness. We've reached a a point in the letter of Peter here where the Apostle Peter is speaking to us about how our new identity with Jesus brings healing, transforming, restoring grace into the nitty-gritty details of life. Isn't it good to know Jesus isn't just for Sunday morning? We take this relationship with Jesus with us when we go to work. We take it to our houses, the fun times at home and the stressful times at home. Jesus comes to us to bring healing love to the most intimate parts of our lives, including our deepest joys and our hidden places of pain and brokenness. And in our text today, Peter's talking about marriage. Now, it doesn't get much more intimate than that. To talk about marriage is to talk about something that's deeply relevant for all of us. Now, there's a lot of married adults in this room, and obviously this is relevant for you. It's also relevant for single adults. Some of you are single but 
thinking about and praying about, perhaps looking forward to one day being married. Others of you may have received from the Lord a joy about embracing the vocation to singleness. But what scripture teaches us is that that vocation to singleness now is already a participation in the heavenly reality that every earthly marriage is pointing towards. Not only that, but this issue of marriage is deeply connected to our intimate joys and our intimate brokenness because all of us in our early lives were shaped by our relationship with our parents or lack thereof. And that means we were shaped by their marriage or lack thereof, perhaps by the beauty or the brokenness or both of their marriage. So this is talking about something which is deeply and intimately human and relevant for all of us. At its best, a healthy marriage has the potential to be one of the most beautiful and life-giving forces in the universe. A healthy marriage, which produces a healthy family life, has the power to be used by God to nurture humans to their full potential in a way that can bring great healing to the world. As a matter of fact, if we're going to lament all the brokenness of every kind in our culture and then ask, what do we need? What would heal us? The number one answer is Jesus. You might have thought I was going to say healthy marriage. That's not it. What we really need is Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. But then if we ask, how do we need Jesus to heal us? And we make a short list somewhere towards the top of that list is Jesus, teach us how to be married. And if we would learn how to do that, so many other things would fall into place. And I want to acknowledge from the beginning, some of us, when we hear this word marriage, we get excited, we get happy. But because this is one of the most intimate places of joy and pain, I know others of us, when we hear the word marriage, there's an ache. An ache of unfulfilled longing. Or an ache of trauma from being hurt. Or an ache maybe of guilt and shame from our own failure. Which is why the message is called marriage, brokenness and grace. And I want to say from the beginning, hey, there's no shame here. There's no condemnation here. And we're coming into the presence of God with all of our beauty and all of our brokenness saying, Jesus, your grace is enough. We're bringing our vulnerable places to God. And there's grace for you in the midst of the brokenness. Here in this text, Peter is calling us to a high and holy standard, which is beautiful. He's really doing the same thing Paul does when he says, Jesus is your model for how to be married. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Be like Jesus in your home. Wives, respect and honor and serve your husbands. Be like Jesus in your home and honor him as you honor Christ. Is what Peter is saying. And it's important for us to spend time with these texts of scripture that uphold to us God's high and holy purpose for marriage. Which can give us hope, but it also can expose how far short we've fallen as a society and maybe in our own lives. So if you experience conviction from the Holy Spirit, I want to say again today, this is not a place of condemnation. You know the difference between conviction from God and condemnation from the devil? Let me tell you, that at the surface they may look similar, because both of them might be telling you that you're wrong, okay? Love and hate might both tell you that you're wrong. 
But when the Holy Spirit brings conviction and reveals sin, what he's saying is, what you're doing is wrong and that's not who you are. I loved you and I'm calling you for more. And what the devil is saying is what you're doing is wrong and that is who you are and you'll never change and there's no hope. You hear the difference? In Christ, there's no condemnation. If the Holy Spirit convicts, he's saying, I'm calling you deeper into my love. You hear that, everybody? So there's hope today. Turn to your neighbor. Say, there's hope. Now, we're about to dig into some of the details of this text, but I'm spending a few extra minutes clearing my throat before I get into this text. Because for the second week in a row, we're dealing with a text of Scripture that i got to say from the beginning. This is a beautiful text. It's a powerful text, but it's one that, for a variety of reasons, a lot of us in here may have a hard time as experiencing or initially hearing as beautiful and good. For several reasons. Let me just mention a few of them to you. First of all, there's linguistic and cultural distance between this text when it was written 2,000 years ago and us. So when we just start reading through it, we may have tripped. You may have tripped a couple times when Supar said things like, Lord, Sarah called him, what? We don't use the word Lord very often. And when we do, we're either talking about Lord Jesus or maybe Lord Vader. And you're trying, looking at your husband now trying to figure out which one is he. And that is not what the text means, right? So there's just a lot of linguistic and cultural stuff going on for us here that we may trip over, that may be hard for us. And I want to say, when the Bible does that, just keep pressing into the Bible, guys. Do the work of understanding it. I found that if there's a text that rows me the wrong way, I need to keep patiently praying and studying for years if I need to. And I found that I know I understand it when I see the beauty of God in it. That's how I know. So there's linguistic and cultural distance. There's also the reality, friends, that we're dealing with generational confusion and brokenness about gender and gender roles. Has anybody noticed that we seem to be confused about what it means to be a man and a woman today? That's definitely the case in our culture. For the last 60 years, we've been going on this bold experiment of reinventing what manness and maleness and womanness and femaleness means and what sexuality means. And we want a liberating revolution where we can create ourselves, but then we don't want to destroy and abuse one another, which seems to be what's happening widely in our culture. There's a lot of generational confusion about gender, about sexuality. And sadly, this confusion is not just in the world, it's also in the church, isn't it? And I don't just mean the church capitulating to the culture. I mean, here's the reality. I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, and man, what a confusing time to be a human being. Anybody relate? Trying to figure out how to be a man? It's one, like you turn on the TV, to be a man means be hyper violent, hyper sexual, hyper aggressive, and be a sensitive man of the 90s, and he's like, I don't know how to do this. It's very confusing. And then, Those Christian congregations who were trying to hold fast to Jesus and the scripture were trying to go back to the Bible, but we're, the Bible's infallible, but we are not. And often when we're trying to hold fast to the scripture, we bring a lot of our cultural junk to the Bible with us, don't we? So we're trying to talk about biblical masculinity and femininity, and somehow there's a lot of stuff about shooting clay pigeons and having tea parties that gets mixed in with that. Which is great if that's what you're into, but maybe that's not the heart of what it's saying. You hear what I'm saying here? I'm not trying to dog on anybody. There's also a reality that those of us who were teaching us about the importance of a biblical vision of manhood and womanhood, some of them, glory to be to God, did a great job of modeling what they're doing. But we're sensitive to the fact that there was a biblical masculinity movement 
that shaped a lot of us growing up. And a lot of those men who taught about loving servant leadership have fallen, have lost their ministries due to arrogance, due to narcissism, due to abuse in some cases, sexual infidelity. And we're left reeling and confused and broken, aren't we? There's a third stumbling block here, which I just alluded to, and it's this issue of abuse. As painful as this is for so many in this room, I think we just got a name for that reason. The fact that the first six verses of this text repeatedly ask wives to affirm a servant leadership role for their husbands. But according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women have experienced some form of violence from an intimate partner. That's not using violence in a big metaphorical way. That means physical violence. One in four women, not much smaller group, have experienced severe violence from an intimate partner. Let that sink in for a second. And by the way, based on my anecdotal experience, sadly, those stats are not much better in the church than outside. One in three women has experienced violence from an intimate partner. And now, think about the fact that's not just one in three, because what about those kids? Some of them experience violence, but certainly many of them experience the trauma of watching dad hurt mom. And many of you have shared your intimate stories with me of trying to protect mom or brother or sister. And that trauma sticks with you, doesn't it? So we have a world that has been broken by sin. And when we read a text like this, for a lot of us, alarm bells might start going off in our heads. And we're saying, so does God say, submit to that abuser? Does Christianity, does this church say, go obey that abuser? If that's who you are, I just want to say from the beginning, no, the Bible doesn't say that. That's not what this text means. And I want to say that's not the kind of father that God is. And that's not the kind of husband that Jesus is. Most of you guys don't know this. One of the first ministry opportunities I ever had to serve in ministry was down in Texas. The ministry I was working with was partnering with a, a shelter that was for women that were actively fleeing domestic violence where they had to be in hiding because somebody was looking for them to hurt them. And as some other people were doing Bible study and counseling with those women, I got the assignment to teach a kid's Bible study for some of those boys. I'm a teenager. And I've got probably 10 to 14 year old boys in my little group. And we're reading the Bible together. And we're talking about Jesus. And we're talking about all kinds of stuff. But whatever else we talked about, seems like every week we were talking about what kind of a father God is. Because he's a gentle and a loving and a merciful father. And he's a father that never abandons us. He's a father who cares for us so deeply. And we want to say, if you've experienced that abuse, God is not that kind of father. And he's not the kind of father who tells you to go stay in that situation. I mentioned last week that Satan is a scripture twister. And he takes the wrong text and applies it to the wrong situation in the wrong way. So if we're dealing with situations of abuse, what I would say is this isn't the text to go to. If we're dealing with a situation of abuse, I'd suggest starting with the text like the story of Hagar. You remember her from Genesis 16 and Genesis 21? 
She was a domestic servant for Sarah, the same Sarah who's commended in this passage, although the biblical record is complicated when it comes to heroes of the faith, isn't it? Because Abraham and Sarah were role models and heroes of the faith, and they were sinners. And we read the story of Abraham and Sarah, heroes of the faith, struggling with doubt and impatience, and as they do that, the collateral damage involves affecting the lives of Hagar and Ishmael. Now, Hagar's a sinner too. It's clear in the text. Bible doesn't romanticize any of us. There's a lot of sinners in this text. But Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child before Sarah becomes pregnant. Abraham and Sarah are trying to learn how to walk with God, but they're still stuck in a bunch of exploitative cultural practices. And then Hagar starts gloating, and then Sarah gets pregnant, and now she's feeling vengeful. And in chapter 21, God tells Abraham to send Hagar away from him. And for a long time when I read that, it bothered me. It made me mad. We need to read the Bible honestly enough to be mad sometimes. And I was, why did you tell, her, tell him to send her away, God? I told you, you keep praying and studying until you see the beauty of God in the passage. And finally, uh, after years, it just became obvious. He's protecting Hagar. She was being exploited. She was in a situation that was about to get bad. There was major conflict happening and she didn't have the power. So Hagar and Ishmael were both incredibly vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. So God tells Abraham, send her away. And then she's in despair as a single mom. Doesn't want to watch her son suffer. And God comes to her and beautifully affirms her. I see you and I hear the cries of your child. I encourage you to go read the story. What it's saying is, let's be clear. In a situation of abuse, God, your father, wants you to be in a place of safety. Do you hear that clearly, everybody? We've got a lot of baggage today. And we're holding a te- reading a text that's trying to hold up to us an ideal. What would it look like if we were Christ-like? If we were Christ-like in our marriage. And as I'm spending the first half of my sermon clearing my throat to say, there's a lot of baggage here. I just want to pause right now to do two things. One, let me reaffirm something to you that we we all need to hear. Jesus is our friend. He's our healer. He's our teacher. He's our master. And Jesus has grace for our deepest place of brokenness. Do you hear that? And we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let me pause mid-sermon right now and ask you to bow your head and pray with me. Where you are, if you're wrestling with this text, if you feel triggered by this text... Please just be honest with God about that, where you are, and then ask for the Holy Spirit to be your teacher today, and I'm going to ask for his help as well. Gracious God, merciful God, healing God, we do need your help. We need your help. Please heal us. Please teach us. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to be, help me be clear. I pray that we would all lead understanding what your word means so deeply that we see the beauty of Christ and we're changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now let's get into the nitty gritty. What does this text mean? First, I want to not too quickly get past two of the key words in this text. Each of them appears three times. Is the word husbands and wives. 
husbands and wives. Now, those words, we may think we know what they mean, but in our cultural moment, I think we got to pause. Because in our cultural moment, when we hear husbands and wives, listen, our culture thinks that means two people that entered into a contract to help each other live, live actualized lives until it's not working anymore. And that is not what the Bible means when it talks about husbands and wives. This is talking about a man and a woman who have been bound together by God in a lifelong covenant of love. A covenant, let's talk about what that means. A covenant is a secure, permanent, binding relationship based on promises. It's based on a vow. Which means... When you're entering into a marriage covenant, you're deciding at the beginning till death do we part. We've lost sight of a vow. We like escape clauses in our contracts. Some of y'all waited three years before you signed the membership covenant of Christ Community Church, which is like the least binding. We all lost them the day after you signed them anyway, guys. And everybody's getting prenuptial agreements and it's like, we don't get it. We don't get it. People like to write their own vows, and that can be beautiful, because it's a beautiful personal way to express love to each other, but some of you know one of my quirky, curmudgeonly things as a pastor is that if I do your ceremony, you can say your own vow, but you're also going to say the traditional vow, because you don't get to make up what marriage is. So if I married you, here's what you said yes to. I looked at you. And said first to the wife, will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? I asked the husband the same thing, and you said, I will. It was a vow before God. It's a covenant, but it's a covenant of love. Everybody say love. Love is another one of those words that we all like, but we seem confused about what it means. And I would say, if we ask the Bible, what is love? It doesn't usually give us an abstract definition. It tells us a story, and you know who the story is about. It's a story about who? Jesus. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The wisest Christian teachers reflecting on that story have observed that when the Bible talks about Christian love, it's talking about from the core of who we are, affirming the being of the other person. So that... The Christian philosopher Joseph Pieper said, when we say I love you, I'm saying, we're saying how good it is that you exist, how wonderful that you are. Now that may feel strange to you, but let me unpack it for a second. When you say that from the core of your being, what you're doing is echoing the creative affirmation of God, who in Genesis 2 made the whole world and said, it is very good. And if you look at another person and say, how good it is that you exist, how wonderful that you are, you're also saying, so I'm committed to preserving and nurturing your God-given life. I'm committed to partnering with God and helping you pursue your flourishing till you become the fullness of who God made you to be. I want you to experience loving union with God and loving union with me as God intends. We're echoing the creative affirmation of God. I would add that we're also echoing the redemptive affirmation of God in Jesus Christ, which is to say we see each other not only in our beauty, but in our brokenness. And we say, even in the midst of your brokenness, how good it is that you are, how wonderful that you exist. And there is hope in Christ's name. Your brokenness doesn't have to define who you are. 
In Christ's name, I'm still committed to pursuing your good and your flourishing in your life. And I want you to experience union with God and loving union with me. That's what all Christian love looks like. If we love our kids, if we love our neighbors, if we love our enemies. But marriage is a special case because it's a covenant of love based on vows, a lifelong commitment to specially love this person in a way that is both spiritual and physical. It's about spiritual and bodily Union. According to scripture, there's two natural and one supernatural purpose for marriage. I'm going to say these really fast so you can listen to the podcast if you actually want to hear it all and understand it. The, the natural purposes for marriage are the unitive and the procreative function. Unitive function refers to the joy of physical and spiritual union that comes from a lifetime of humble service and commitment to the other person. The procreative function of marriage refers to the fact that this loving union, this mutual embrace, brings forth new life into the world in the form of physical children and in all kinds of other forms, according to the mercy and providence of God. There's two natural functions of marriage, the unitive and the procreative. There's also a supernatural function, which is what Ephesians 5 is talking about, that your marriage was created by God to be a living parable of Jesus Christ and his love for the church. Which means you're supposed to look at Jesus and how he pours himself out for the joy and the holiness of the church and for its flourishing. And husband, you're supposed to say, I'm going to pour myself out for my wife like that. And then it says, you look at the church and see how it responds to the love of Christ with respect and honor and mutual love and embrace. And wife, you say, I want to do that for my husband. That's the purpose of marriage, which means to say husband and wife is a big deal to get married is to enter into something very ancient and very sacred that God has made. So now you say, okay, but I'm already married. What do I do? And Peter has more help for you. Let's talk to husbands first. Look at verse 7. Peter packs all of his advice for husbands into one verse, but there's a lot in there. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Let's pause and chew on that. Live with her. That's talking about... The whole fabric of your life together. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, text messages during the day, you're having a conversation about some parenting situation, you're scheduling something, it's date night, we're dealing with a conflict, trying to get everybody to church this morning, which means spiritual warfare and dealing with a conflict. All that stuff, right? All of life. The whole fabric of life, husband, he says, let it be marked by this. In all of your dealings with your wife, you're living with her in an understanding way. Everybody say, understanding. What does that mean? It means live with her in a way that sees and affirms and responds appropriately to the fullness of who she really is. It means take her personhood seriously and seek to understand her as a person As a human being with a voice and with a perspective, a voice that is valid and good and from God, a perspective that's valid and good and from God. Taking her personhood seriously, according to Peter, means recognizing not only is she made in the image of God, but she's a prophet, priest and king. I mean, if you take first Peter too seriously and everything that it said about our identity in Christ then acknowledging her personhood means by the grace of God, she's loved and she's powerful. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to take her seriously, husband. 
worth saying. How does that play out practically? Let's put it negatively and then positively. Negatively, husbands, here's what we don't do. Never demean your wife's perspective. Never belittle her voice. Brothers, I don't want to shame you, but I do want to speak directly to you. Hear me. In the name of God, don't drag out that tired, foolish, old stereotype where you think you're the logical one and she's the emotional one. Don't do that. Don't invalidate her opinion. I'll tell you, by the way, I'm still a young pup, but having done marriage counseling and conflict mediation for over a decade now, in general, in an argument, the one who keeps saying, I'm just being logical, is usually being a lot of things, but logical is not necessarily one of them. Don't drag out silly old stereotypes. Don't call her childish. Don't say she's being too emotional. Don't interrupt her. Don't demean her. Don't call her names. Definitely don't threaten her. If you've done those things, I don't want to heap change on you, but I do want to say in the name of God, come to the light. Repent. Tell her you're sorry and you were wrong and ask her forgiveness. And then affirm to her who she really is in the Lord. Positively, what does it look like to live with your wife in an understanding way? Here's one to keep us busy. Listen to her. Just listen to her. Ask her what she thinks. Also, ask her how she feels. Her feelings and yours are both valid. Those are good too. Husband, ask her what she wants. Ask her what she needs. If you ask her what her desires and hopes are for your family, she has a hard time articulating that. That might be a signal you need to ask that question more frequently. Just make it normal. Ask her what she wants and what she needs, and then adjust your life based on what she says. Until in all of your life, she can say to you, I feel heard. My voice is valued. My perspective is honored in this relationship. And I want to encourage you guys, one really practical thing to do. Um, I double dog dare you this week. At some point, ask your wife, how am I doing at living with you in an understanding way? In the course of our marriage, do you feel heard? Do you feel like your voice and your perspective is valued and affirmed overall? And how can I grow in that? How can I get better at it? And then listen to her and don't defend yourself. And if you're scared to ask that question, that's a sign you should probably ask the question. This week, I went to Candace. We've talked about this many times, but I went to her again this week and said, Candace, I can't stand before God with integrity and preach this sermon without asking you, how am I doing at living with you in an understanding way? Tell me. And I want to keep having that conversation until Jesus calls us home. Then Peter goes on to say, live with your wives in an understanding way. Honor the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, let's talk about the weaker vessel. That's one of those things that might have triggered a few people. What does that not mean, first of all? It does not mean she's emotionally weaker or intellectually weaker or morally weaker or spiritually weaker. It doesn't mean any of those things. I think what Peter's actually doing is something that we need to do here, which is acknowledging the fact that in general, guys are physically stronger. Which is an important fact to acknowledge. Now, we've got some sisters in the room, I think at least one or two who have black belts that could probably take me out. And that doesn't threaten my masculinity. Hope it never comes to that. But, God bless you, and if you want to start a self-defense class, i got three daughters. 
that we can put in there. But having said that, here's a fact. Men are generally taller. They're generally heavier. They have more upper body strength. Testosterone helps with muscle development, which is why in a sinful, broken world, because we're talking about grace and our brokenness today, aren't we? In a sinful, broken world that has domestic violence, a lot more often than not, it's the man hurting the woman. So Peter is looking these brothers in the faith in the eye and saying, God made you bigger and stronger to protect and to serve. Never to hurt. Never to harm. He's saying, guys, use your strength to bless her. He's saying, guys, never lay your hands on your wife or your children in anger. He's saying, guys, if you ever are using your body to try and get your wife to do something she doesn't want to do, you are sinning and you need to repent. That's what he's saying. What he says, though, positively, though, is honor her. Honor her as the weaker vessel. That means treat her as a person of great value and great dignity. With your words in public and in private, let everybody know when she's listening, when she's not, that she's a person of great value. I, it's so easy to do this with Candace because she's awesome. And I, I, plus, I've got a pulpit. So you guys had to figure out your own way. But I can just say right now, Candace is faithful and she's intelligent and she's creative and she's loving and she's blessing me and a bunch of people every day of her life. Candace is great. And saying, guys, just get in the habit of telling everybody in public and private when she's listening, when she's not listening, how great your wife is. And especially with your actions and the details of how you live with her, like Jesus, say, you're valuable. You're valuable. That's what it means. Peter gives guys two motives for this. First, he says, she's an heir with you of the grace of life. Now, this is saying something radical. You need to understand that in Roman culture, it was against the law. I mean, it wasn't even legally possible for women to inherit. So an inheritance always went from father to son, which means if I want to leave my books, that's what I got mostly. If I want to leave all my books to Abigail and Zoe and Sophia, I can't if I'm in a Roman society. It's not even possible. But Peter's saying it's not like that in the kingdom of God. It's not like that. She's a co-heir with you of the grace of life, which if you understand theologically what Peter means by that, here's what it's saying, guys. Look at your wife for a second. And now... Picture her a billion years from now. And Peter's saying a billion years from now, she's going to have an immortal, glorified, resurrected body and a perfected soul so that all the goodness and beauty you see and don't see in her is going to be brought to the surface with resplendent majesty. And what she's going to be doing is reigning with Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches over the new creation. What does that mean? People ask me that. I have no idea. I think maybe we get to tell dolphins what to do or something. I'm not sure. But we're going to be reigning with Jesus in a new creation. And Peter says that's what she's going to be a billion years from now. So treat her accordingly today. And he says, so your prayers may not be hindered. You can't separate your relationship with God from your relationship with your spouse. Is what he's saying. Let's put it negatively and positively again. Guys, hear this word. Again, I'm not trying to heap shame on anybody. But if you're here today... And you're saying, for a long time I felt spiritually dry. I open the Bible and it doesn't move me. I come listen to sermons and I'm looking at my clock thinking, when is lunch? 
I get around worship and some people seem excited to praise God and my heart isn't moved. According to today's text, one of the big questions I need to ask myself is, do I need to repent of the way I'm treating my wife? Because God's saying, if you want to know my loving kindness, you need to treat my daughter with care. Or we could put it positively. Positively, men, if you're married, it's saying, if you want to worship your Lord, if you want to honor Jesus, if you want to respond to his care for you by embracing him and pursuing life with him, don't see your family as a distraction from that. Embrace your wife. Affirm your wife. You'll be embracing and affirming Jesus Christ. It's an act of worship. Instruction to wives. They've got six verses, so I can't talk about all that. Because that when is lunch question is a valid question taken in the appropriate spirit. But let me just comment on a few, a few of these things Peter says to the sisters. Verse 2, he says, he talks about reverent and holy conduct, which is not what your translation says. Your translation says respectful and pure, indicating be respectful and pure the way you treat him, which is good advice. But I think what Peter's actually saying is be reverent and holy towards God in the way you treat your husband. And the way that you talk to him, make sure you're honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you also see your, the way that you treat him, your attitude, your words, your actions, as an expression of your worship for the Lord God. And, and in verse 2, there's this phrase, win without a word. Now, that's one of those phrases that we might have tripped over. Is this saying women are supposed to be silent? Is it saying they don't have a voice? Part of what I'm trying to say, this whole text is saying women do have a voice. But Peter's speaking into a pastoral situation of many women who have come to know Christ and their husbands don't know the Lord. And who knows that trying to talk about Jesus to your family is some of the hardest trying to talk about Jesus. And he's saying there's a limit to what can be accomplished by preaching at folks. I don't think he means never have an explicit gospel conversation. We need to have those with our family. But what he's doing is talking to us about the compelling, persuasive power of a life that is transformed by grace. Which, this is good advice in Christian families where somebody's struggling too. We need to have honest conversations where we speak truth to one another. But trying to micromanage and control each other. First of all, has anybody found that that works? I haven't found that it works either. It's also very exhausting. And what the text is saying is walk with God. If you want to help your spouse, walk with God. Peter seems to be mostly concerned about attitude here. If you want to bless your husband, have a great attitude. That's the way to paraphrase what it says. If you want to honor God in your marriage, have a great attitude. And he goes on to talk about the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is another one of those. Let's unpack what does it mean. Does this mean you've got to be an introvert? Does this mean you don't speak your mind? No. You can be a holy introvert or a holy extrovert. You can have a gentle and quiet spirit with a lot of words or with a few words. But... When, Paul, when Peter is saying, don't let your beauty be primarily out external cosmetics, let it be a gentle and quiet spirit, he's talking about relative value. You can, he's not saying never wear makeup. You can wear makeup or not wear makeup, sisters. That's between you and Jesus. I don't care. Right? But what we're saying is the beauty that really matters is a beauty of character. And what does a gentle and quiet spirit mean? I think Peter's talking about the deep peace and tranquility of a soul that deeply knows who you are and whose you are. Did you hear that? A gentle and quiet spirit is about the inner peace, the inner tranquility of a soul 
that knows who you are and whose you are. And that deep inner peace can become a wellspring of creative love for people. I want all the sisters and all the daughters to hear me for a second. Abigail, Zoe, Sophia, y'all wait. Why don't you hear me for one second, okay? Here's what it's saying. Abigail's taking notes. Way to go, girl. It's saying this. You know God. You hear that, sister? You know God. And God knows you. You are his beloved daughter. This is for you, Zoe. You ready? You are his beloved daughter. The Lord of hosts is your protector. And he's your vindicator, which is a big word for saying when men and women and boys and girls say she's bad, she's ugly, she's wrong. God says she's mine. She's good. She's beautiful. That's what it's saying. Your sins are forgiven by grace. Your destiny is secure by grace. You can have a personal relationship with God that is not mediated by anybody, including any father, any husband, or any pastor. I want to be clear here. I don't have anything against fathers, husbands, or pastors. I know some great ones. I am all three. But what I am trying to say is, I want everybody to hear. Daughters, wife, sisters in the faith, everybody hear it. You don't need to go through me or any other dude to get to God, except for Jesus. He's the only one. God came to you, the one mediator between God and humanity. It used to be a thing when we were talking about biblical masculinity in the 90s to talk about the man as a priest of the home. I don't really like that. Because, sisters, you're a priest. You can go to God even if your husband doesn't know what he's doing. But you should be a spiritual leader in your home, guys. That's good, too. Because all of that is true, the text is saying... Dwell in that, rest in that, till there's a deep tranquility of soul that allows you to speak truth in happy situations and stressful situations, to love and respect in good times and in bad times, and that will be a beauty that is compelling and pleasing to God. And verse 6 reminds you, there's holy women who hoped in God. You're connected to a spiritual legacy. Sisters, there's so many mothers of the faith, so many heroes I just encourage you. I wish I had time to tell stories. I encourage you. You got to know about St. Marcina. You got to know about St. Monica and St. Hilda. You got to read biographies of Amy Carmichael. If y'all think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is cool, y'all really got to learn about Coretta. She's cool. Okay. There's so many mothers in the faith and sisters in the faith. And Peter's saying, you may be going through a hard time, but you've got role models of mothers in the faith who did good and hoped in God. Pass on that spiritual Legacy, And finally, last, last word before I'm about to wrap up with the wives and, and conclude our time together. He says to them, listen intently. Now, you don't see that in verse 6 because what it says is obey. But if you pulled out your strong concordance and looked at the top definition for this Greek word, what it would say is listen intently. In some contexts, it means obey uh, because what it really is is a word that comes from two Greek words. One that says listen, one that says under. What it means is listen humbly. Now, what does that mean? I'm afraid that if we say obey him and call him Lord, we may sound like, is the Bible saying women are like children? And the answer is no. That's not what it's saying. Saying she's a co-heir with you, the grace of God. She has a voice that's from God. But it's also saying, sisters, this. When your husband, who was also raised in whatever, the 70s or 80s or 90s, and is confused about how to do this, and is depending on the grace of God and his brokenness, and sometimes abdicates his leadership responsibility, and sometimes misuses it, when he's trying to lead, please affirm him. 
That's what it's saying. Have grace for him. Listen to him. We could put it like this with a question. When your husband tries to lead, how do you respond? Do your words and actions tear him down or do they build him up? Do you respond to his words with arrogance or with humility? When he does wrong, listening under means respectfully telling him the truth. Respectfully. Might mean asserting your God-given boundaries with respect and love and humility. But when he's trying to do right, means affirm him in Christ's name. Let him know that you're with him. Let him know that you support him. Now, as I wrap up today, I want to return to the fact it's possible some of us have experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. And we need to end by looking again at Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. He's our model. If you want to know what perfect servant leadership is or what perfect uh, following and supporting of leadership is, you look at Jesus. He's the role model. And if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction, you're recognizing areas of failure and weakness, or you're having areas of pain brought to the surface, Jesus is your healer. Jesus is your forgiver. Jesus is the one who can give you strength to go forward. The invitation for all of us today, whatever our life situation might be, is come to Jesus. Say, you're Lord. You died and rose again so I can be forgiven and free. And I'm recommitting again to walk with you. Bring your healing grace into my places of intimate joy and intimate pain. We need you. Do we need Jesus this morning? Let's bow our heads and pray and ask for his help. Our Father, I pray for all of us that we'd be more like Jesus in the way that we relate to one another. That love and truth and respect would flow from hearts that are at peace with God. Where our relationships are broken, we want to repent. We ask that you forgive and heal and help us. Lord, if there's places where Our hearts just want to rebel against your word. Would you gently woo us to yourselves, taking into account the brokenness and confusion of our times? Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, we recognize that ultimately our hope is not how much we are like Jesus, but it's how much Jesus has given for us. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We confess once again that you are our Lord. Amen.